Today on Superhero Ethics, we go where no podcast has gone before, into a land where two of the people on this podcast have blue or purple streaks in their hair, but not Mr. Hoppy. More importantly, we're talking about Star Trek and the nature of the frontier with Professor Matthew Capel and Paul Hoppy and myself. All that more after a commercial break we have no control over. Welcome back. I'm Matthew, your host. He's they, them pronouns. Uh, I'm joined as fairly often by my still stuck in the 21st century with no foreign color in his hair, co-host of De Jour, Paul Hoppy. Paul, how are you doing today? Um, I'm good. Yeah. That's that's all I got. I'm good. Yeah. Okay. Very <laughs> verbose. Uh, also joining me is another guest who... I've recorded a podcast with already. We had audio problems. They may get rescued, but I'm really glad to have back again Professor Matthew Capel. Uh, Matthew is a professor of uh, American Studies and Anthropology at Pace University in New York City. I got a great email a while ago now uh, saying that he was a fan of the podcast, that he had some ideas about, uh, you know, looking at a lot of the stuff we talk about through the lens of mythology and storytelling and how these themes play into larger themes that are just a part. It just made my academic heart get so happy and made me realize I wanted Matthew on the podcast for as many episodes as we could. Uh, we have a lot of Star Wars contact coming out now. So I said, hey, what can we do other than Star Wars? And he mentioned the uh Star Star Trek, because we can do both of them, Star Trek and the Frontier, and I thought this would be a fantastic topic. So, Matthew, so good to have you with us. Uh, say hello. Hello. Just to be clear, it was a <laughs> it was a fan letter, and I was not giving you suggestions. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you mentioned something like, this is a cool, like, somehow we got into the conversation. Um, I will say that a lot of people have sent me fan letters, and they've turned into uh, unknown solicitations to be on the podcast. <laughs> but I'm very glad that you've done, um, I've enjoyed all of our conversations, and I think this is going to be a great one. So let me just kind of start by letting people hear a little bit more about you. Um, talk a little about your background in terms of the kind of stuff you teach about and how Star Wars and superheroes and and the epic stories that we love and talk about on these podcasts kind of fit into the work you do. Sure. Um, so I'm a historian and anthropologist, though my doctorate's in American studies. Um, and I've done a lot of books in my career on um, science fiction film. And the reason I like science fiction film is because it's basically myth. Um, it's the way we tell myth today. Um, if you want to talk about any kind of myth, you have to start with Batman. You can't start with Zeus, right? Um, and in, in that context, um, my PhD thesis had an entire chapter on the frontier in Star Trek. And that's why I brought it up with you. Um, and it's very much a topic that has got ethical issues all around it, but as most of Star Trek does. So generally, I'm kind of semi-retired at this point. I basically just teach regular old-fashioned anthropology, things like urban ethnography um, and American studies. I think I'm teaching a class in the fall on um, science and technology after World War II. Um, so nothing special, very mythological, but all of my writing is in myth, so that's why I like you. Nice, nice. Well, I, I'm glad. It's, it's it's such a great topic. I, I think I mentioned uh, on the other time we tried to record a podcast that 
the first time I thought seriously about Star Wars beyond just, you know, being I love the, the laser sword fights and things like that was watching um, the, the Peter Campbell, you know, uh, and George Lucas talking about the power, the power of myth and um, Star Wars. And since then, I've come to understand that there's a, um, a lot more to those ideas than what those two gentlemen had to say. Uh, for those of you not watching on the stream, you didn't get to see uh, Matthew kind of roll his eyes a bit when I mentioned that. Because it, it is just one perspective of many, but it's, it, it, it's such a, a rich field for discussing these things. And so let me just start by asking, so when we say the frontier, like that's, um, you know, start every Star Trek episode for a long time always opened with, you know, space, the final frontier or some version of it. Um, the frontier was something I remember being taught about in American history, especially 19th century, that, you know, it was always the find the next frontier, American exceptionalism and all that. Talk about what what does the frontier mean as a concept in American mythology? Well, I think the easy place to start is to point out that for three or four generations, historians thought the frontier was a real thing that they were talking about as a historical artifact. Um, but when the 1960s rolled around and people stopped thinking about history as the history of white men only, um, we came to the conclusion pretty quickly that our notion of the frontier was highly flawed. Um, not in terms of the frontier is bad, in terms of that's bad history. That's bad history writing. Um, so because I'm an academic, I have come with quotes. Here's the quote you need. Um, there was a, so America as a, as a nation doesn't really have universities with history professors until like the 1880s. In fact, most of the disciplines we think of are 1880s to 1910. My field of anthropology is basically 1910. Um, history, the, First um, American Historical Association meeting is like 1884, maybe. Um, so the, before the American Historical Association is even 10 years old, um, a historian from Wisconsin named Frederick Jackson Turner gives this stunningly important paper that we have been reading over and over and over again, um, even though we know he's wrong. Um, and here, here's, here's a, it's called The Significance of the Frontier in American History. And the famous quote, which I can almost do from memory, um, but I'm going to read just to be safe, is, um, up until our own day, American history has been, in a large degree, the history of the colonization of the Great West. And here it is. The existence of an area of free land its continuous recession, and the advance of American settlement westward explain American development. Hmm. That's 1893 in Chicago. Um, it, it, we can take it apart, right? At free land, there, there, there was nobody there. Free land, right? Um, right? Um, it's con this, this continuing colonization of this free land from the time of the, of the Mayflower to, to 1893. Um, and one of the things that Frederick Jackson Turner says in this 1893 talk is, but the frontier is gone now and we've got to figure out something else. Because according to the Census Bureau, the frontier is done. Within f six years of that, we're having the Spanish-American War looking for the next frontier. Um, so this 
Frederick Jackson Turner was really good at doing something that academics like to do, um, used to like to do, and that was sending out reprints. So he, he, he did this talk, he published it, and he sent out hundreds of copies of it to important people throughout the United States. And people got excited to get shit like that in the mail, excuse me, stuff like that in the mail. Um, you know, oh my God, a historian from Wisconsin really has an idea, and and um, he sent it to me. Um, and if there's there's like maybe one or two people that invent the idea of professional historians in the United States, and this is one of the guys. He's the guy who gets paid to be a historian by a university where he only teaches history. He was trained to be a historian, and that's what he does. Um, and at the time, he sounds like a social scientist. Today, he sounds like a mythographer. At the time, he sounded like a political historian. Today, he sounds like somebody who's explaining how the myth of the frontier worked. Um, and he did a really great job at that. And the frontier has been with us ever since. Um, between his talk and the New Deal, we're worried about the next frontier. By the time we get to the 1960s with Kennedy, we have the new frontier. Alaska's made a state, and its, its slogan is the last frontier. Um, and I think Star Trek has some kind of frontier as well. Um, and, there's stuff after, and there's stuff after that, too. Um, so the frontier has been this thing that we cannot get away from. And, well, and just hearing you say that, I can see what you mean about how it is such a dangerous part of, of the American kind of mythology. You know, it's up there with the, like, pulled up by your own bootstraps of, you know, as Americans, it's our job not only to to continually conquer the new frontier, to bring the American goodness to the West and then going to the Spanish lands and then going, you know, you can see how it's just again and again um, been a thing. Paul, is this, I, I, I you mentioned the Turner episode, the essay, and I, I was going to hopefully show off by mentioning it. I remember reading that in history class. Okay, so, it's one of the only things I can remember from American history. And the, and the fact um, that the fact that you've read it is problematic, because we stopped making students read it in a, like 1960. So so I, I want to go, go find your guy and, and tell her or him that, that this, was, this was a mistake. But anyway, Paul. Unless it was read within a context that was like aware of of yes. that, which is possible. Yeah, you know, yeah. It, given where it, you it, went, it, there was a kind of historiography aspect to it, but yeah, Jeffrey Gunn, if you're listening, um, I, I, I have some questions about an essay I wrote uh, on a midterm, and now another professor is backing me up. So, um, <laughs> yeah, Paul, what for you? Like, um, do you have memories of this kind of idea of the frontier, or just kind of think something you've thought about in general in uh, your many um, praises of America that I know you're so fond of? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I would say that. You know, for all the failings of the education system that, you know, I was um, incarcerated in for my youth, <laughs> uh, I think that um, actually the, the, the first school that I went to, Bank Street, um, from like age five until 13 or 14, um, I think did a good job of being like, no, there there were native people here, and first you're going to learn about that, and then you're going to learn about, you know, people showing up from the Netherlands, and then people showing up from England, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I do feel like uh, I I was not taught this like idea of the frontier being this like great thing and like American progress and all that. I I do you know the complaints that I have are that. I think a lot of um, the way all this was taught 
was like and that's what happened in the past and now everything's much much better you know we've we've totally solved all these problems and you know like the idea like racism is in the past or the south like you know that <laughs> that i'd say like they let us down on you know but but i i did feel like um there was um there was some idea of you know the frontier being an idea and not like sort of like this great thing that happened and was conquered, you know, like how, how the West was won, like that this was like some victory, right? I think it, it was um, like, even from a young age, I feel like I was, you know, told that it's like, th th this wasn't a great thing that, <laughs> that, you know, that America did. And, and I, I appreciate that, you know? Um, yeah. And I, you know, obviously I think we can probably still do better, but um, that's, it's interesting, you know, you're talking about space and, you know, space, the final frontier and all that, like space actually there, there, you know, the word kind of says a lot of it, like there, there actually is space out there, right? There are many, many, many uninhabited planets. Earth is inhabited. It has been inhabited all over for a very long time. And so the idea of this frontier, it's like, there were people there, right? There's animals there, like there were trees, like, and all of which, you know, many got, got killed, right? Whereas it, the idea of something like colonizing Mars, for instance, it's like, well, maybe just everyone should move to Mars. Like, it's like, there's, there's I mean, as far as we know, there's not life there, right? So right. if you were to go to that frontier, you know, out into space, granted at some point, I, I think you probably would run into some form of life and probably some form of intelligent life that maybe wouldn't regard humans as particularly intelligent life. I don't know. But like space is more of a, it fits that mythology more than the reality fit that mythology, I think. Perhaps not within the context of Star Trek, where there's all these different, you know, species and everything, and tons of planets are inhabited. But as far as we know, it's like there's, you know, there is actual space in space. And, like, you could go there right. and not be stepping on people who live there already. The, the meme I keep getting is the how you know Star Trek was written by white guys, and it's they're going where no one was gone before, and there's always people there. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I, I think that that's kind of what I was, I was going to say is that yeah, you're right. Like actual space yeah. would make sense for this frontier mythology. Uh -huh. One of the things I think makes is that I think we're definitely going to talk about is that in Star Trek, it, it feels very much that same idea of the undiscovered country, which is the name of actually one of the better Star Trek movies, but still is it, it, it always refers to the thing that hasn't been discovered by us. Right, right. You know, and in the same way, it feels like for the frontier, it's that we, the white man, have not gone there yet. And I'm, I'm, I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And so that's probably a good way to jump into the Star Trek part of it. Um, and actually, I'll start here with you, Paul, because I think you have not watched much Star Trek, correct? Yeah, I've seen maybe like five to eight of the movies of different eras. And then I've seen uh -huh. some episodes here and there of various different shows and like halves of a bunch of episodes. But I haven't like sat down and watched a whole series of, of the television or like all the movies in order. Right. So, which is good. I always like having someone who doesn't necessarily know the source material we're talking about it as much just to kind of bring in that perspective in the conversation. Um, so for you, when I when I like mentioned the, the idea that we're talking about of like Star Trek and the frontier, 
what comes to mind to you about like what that what that entails and what what Star Trek and Frontiers have to do with each other? Yeah, I mean, it seems to me like it is kind of an allegory for the you know, mythology of the West, and it is about you know, as far as I can tell, it's about the Enterprise going out and stumbling upon different cultures that are already there and then not interfering but interfering but like i don't know they have some directives and (laughs) (laughs) it it seems to me like yeah it's not a bunch of just like open space really right it's like there's a lot out there and then um you know there's wars or there's arguments and and various different things and i i do feel like it probably is a a show and and movies or whatever um however you want to describe it um a a universe that would probably appeal to a lot of uh, my sensibilities perhaps more than like star wars does but it doesn't have laser swords so you know um (laughs) it it just I, i don't know i never um super grabbed onto it but the idea of i mean the idea of frontier is like its perspective right like it's it's it doesn't have to be just like white men it could be like the klingons could have what they regarded as a frontier and i mm-hmm. i mean i think is there something in in the star wars i mean the star trek like i i don't know if you call it mythology but of like that a bunch of other species were aware of humanity but was sort of like no we'll just leave them alone because like they're not quite like ready to interact with other um, like other cultures and species yet. Is that a thing in one of them somewhere? There are a couple of episodes that play with that, but they never really <laughs> fold it into the overarching story very much. Okay. But like, here's a massively superior alien intelligence who's like, maybe when you're ready, we'll talk to you. Right. right. Yeah. The, there's a small version of it in that the Vulcans... Um, the Vulcans have an idea of they don't want to contact anybody until they become warp capable. Oh, um, okay. And so that's why one of the movies is all about them becoming warp capable in a way that the, the Vulcans will notice. And then right. once the Federation is around, that that's kind of their, their bar of until you become capable of warp speed – you're not on our level and so we're going to see you as like and it's framed in a very like we're going to protect you kind of a way right right but it's very much a kind of like noble savage you're the primitive you're you're not worthy of our attention but therefore also like oh that meteor is going to crash into your planet well prime directive we shouldn't interfere right um so things like that so so matthew tell toss about what it like when i hear when frontier like there's a lot of thoughts i come up with but for you, what does it mean to kind of look at these two thought, two things together? Okay, so I'm going to say, like, two things, because Paul had a, a, this really good point. Maybe the Klingons have a frontier, right? Be- mm. Before Americans talk about the frontier, frontier was a different kind of word. Um, there was a frontier between France and Germany, um, and what mm. they meant was this area that's not quite French and not quite German, and there's a cultural um, competition going on to see what it's going to be. Um, the Alsace Pyrenees... The yeah, Alsace Lorraine or the Pyrenees. Some of my ancestors were from there. Yeah. So, yeah. I was talking uh, about that. So, so it, you could have grown up speaking French, you could have grown up speaking German. Um, and that's right. what frontiers were. Actually, the, um, the Doctors Without Borders um, was founded in, in Paris. Their actual name is French, and it's not Doctors Without Borders, it's Medicine Sans Frontieres. Oh. Uh. Right. Um, 
and that kind of frontier um, is a different kind of frontier than we mean. Um, the kind of frontier Americans talk about is the kind of frontier where we go and we we discover ec- economic opportunity and finally buy a farm. Yay! Right. right. Um, there's a wonderful um, British scholar who call, talks about people's lawns and lawn care as the last gasp of frontiers for Americans. Um, <laughs> right. And and but it's true. Um, so yes. So. There has to be like this idea of a frontier that's between us, the the Federation and Klingons, as well as the frontier of empty space. I wish there was more empty space. But then again, I wish there was warp. Um, (laughs) Still. Okay, here's here's another quote I brought. Because here's the Star Trek doesn't want to do this thing, but they really do it. There's this great book from the 1830s called Westward Ho. And it is by a guy whose name is James Kirk Pauling. Um, That name has some significance in a Star Trek kind of way. Kind of does. Um, And here's what he says about traveling west. He says, um, no matter where he goes, you know, Eastern European males, no matter where he goes to whatever region, he carries within his destiny, which is to civilize the world and to rule it afterwards. That is American frontier racism in a nutshell. I mean, it's perfect. And it's James Kirk falling. Yeah. Um, And when... Yes, please go. Well, I was saying, it's funny because I, I know that like when Gene Roddenberry was marketing the show and trying to get people to buy into it, like the phrase that he used that's now quite famous is it's wagon train to the stars. Yeah. And so it's meant to be like a Western exploring show. But I, I hadn't really put together until you said that, like just how deep the like that. It's not it's not just about the idea of going to explore new things, but it's about this idea of carrying the Federation exceptionalism now instead of American exceptionalism, but it's the same idea, carrying that out to to everyone. And, and it's funny because in, in that way, and, and, and as a historian, you can tell me if I'm wrong here, it does feel like in that extent, America is exceptional in that it, it's the exception. It's different, not that it's better, but that like, you know, like the French wanted an empire, but there was a sense of like the borders of France with some like, you know, joshing around with the lines between Germany or Spain or Italy, but like the lines of what is France have been established for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Same with with all these other countries. The idea of like that America is a thing that has to be continually expanded and, you know, our divine providence to divine manifest destiny and all that, that is a, a thing that is exceptional to the United States. Am I correct on that? Or at least somewhat? Somewhat, yeah. I mean, the French for a while thought Algiers was part of France, right? But, um, but yeah, go back to the Northwest Ordinance. Um, what the United States did shortly after the uh, beginning of the constitutional period was say, um, here's this new area that goes all the way to where you're at, Matthew, Minnesota, um, north of the Ohio, and here's how they can create new states. And those states, when they're admitted to the Union, will be entirely and completely equal to the existing states. That was the new thing. So it was a mistake with Ohio, but every place else, they're like, okay, <laughs> Indiana, you, you are just as good as Massachusetts, right? Um, and that was, that was relatively unique. The other thing that was really unique about it was they said, when you create townships, you have to sell part of it to create schools. Um, and that was also very unique for the time period to say, okay, every township is going to be 36 square miles, and right in the middle, you're going to have a chunk that is going to be sold exclusively to 
finance schools, public schools for the population of this right. new township. That was also really new, um, the idea of both right. of those things. So, yeah, I mean, every nation is exceptional, though, right? Um, there, there's and it's, yeah, it, it's the idea of this specific thing about America is exceptional. Yeah. Um, and that last part, the, li- the, the when I lived in Wisconsin, they like to point out the land grant thing because the main historical uh result of that, at least according to people in Wisconsin, where this is very important, is Big Ten college football. Um, <laughs> that's, you know, another thing. Uh, uh, but let's, let's pull it back. To, oh, go ahead. Go I ahead. just want to respond as a, a trivia enthusiast. Um, uh-huh. Do you know what country actually has the most time zones? Uh, Russia. Russia. France. France has something like 13 time zones because actually all of those places are regarded as part of France. Oh, because like French Samoa and things yeah. like that. So they might not actually be, you know, conceptualized that way, but certainly in a in a legal sense, they are actually France, and That's and thus it has like thirteen time zones or something absurd, compared right. to like China's one, which which is so terrible. Like, because I know like with the British right. Empire, for example, like they were always very clear, like this is all British territory, right. but it is not. Great Britain. Right, right. It's exactly. England. It's different that way. Russia is the, the largest um, contiguous number of time zones or something like that. Right. But, that makes sense. But France actually has um, like 13. So. All right. Pull, pulling it back to Star Trek, though. Leave it to France. Um, yeah. It, it's interesting, though, especially because, and I think in many ways, Star Trek is, I, I think for good reason, often regarded as being a fairly progressive show for its time always. But like... You know, today there's a lot of stuff on the more modern Star Trek shows have characters of color and women characters and transgender characters all in very important roles. It's really pushing the boundaries of a lot of kind of interesting social issues it's talking about. And so I often think about it that like, you know, and even the, even the show from the 60s, it's clearly being very critical of, you know, Jim Crow and the anti-civil rights culture, or the Vietnam War. And so I think of it as being a show that is very critical in progressive liberal ways of the existing culture of America in the 60s. But to me, this is such a great example of just the bias that always happens there, is that even from that perspective, we weren't challenging the idea of the frontier as the great liberal, you know, as as, that there's something wrong or racist about it because it's baked into Star Trek, like you said, from the very beginning. It's baked into America. Um, Well, yeah, that too. Um, Maybe. Maybe the, the strength of Star Trek is not that they just they wholeheartedly accepted the idea of the frontier, but that they tried to take it and um, twist it to their own ends that was a much more woke version of the frontier. Mm. Right? Um, you can't get rid of pick a world religion, but you can change the way we think about that religion as a believer. Um, Right. We're not going to get Americans to stop thinking the frontier is where America became great. Um, but maybe if we talk about that greatness in a different way, we'll get something. Mm. So so what do you think of how Star Trek, and this is kind of a very broad question, we get into more specifics, but kind of taken overall, how do you feel like Star Trek has wrestled with the, the, the concept of the frontier? Okay, so um, poorly. <laughs> Fair. Yeah. Um, but um, increasingly not. Uh, so initially, the original Star Trek, which I watched when I was writing my PhD, but um, just because I had to, um, is very is 
very liberal um, in many wonderful ways, but it also still has many skirts, right? Um, it's a it's a product of its time. Nobody says Napoleon was a bad general because he didn't have an air force. Um, and um, but when they went places, quite often they um, were just meeting people that were inferior to them and fixing them. Um, and that is a, a notion of American frontier ideology straight up. Since that moment, um, they've stepped further and further away from the frontier every chance they get. Um, I, I was just thinking about the most recent J.J. Abrams one, um, where they go out to the frontier and they find the bad guy, and it turns out he was a human the whole time, um, because the bad guy can't be the other. Um, so instead, we're just ignoring the fact that there's a frontier. Um, and I, I, I think that's the general trend of Star Trek, which was to keep saying final frontier, um, but become more and more about globalization than anything. Right? So by the time you get to next generation, it's great powers talking to each other. And, and now, I don't even know what to call it now, um, it's um, very much not about a historical narrative. They, they try to avoid it in any way they can. Mm. I guess the new one, Strange right. New Worlds, is less like that. But, but they, they're, they're fully aware now that if they talk about the frontier too much, they're going to come off bad. Um, so instead, they try to avoid talking about the frontier, um, except for the, the voiceover at the beginning. Um, it's, we've met these new people, and aren't they great? It's like um, um, middle school diversity day. These people are different. Yay, that's great. The end. Right. Um, right. Yeah. And that's Star Trek now. Um, which is a critique, but not a critique that I hold in my heart very well. Just to be clear. Do you think there's room for basically like confronting it more head on within the sort of mythology of Star Trek of having more more nuance? Yes, I think there is. I don't think they're going to do so. I don't think I don't think it's a saleable script. Right. Um, Right. Um, I, I, I totally think that the current group of creators are would be very capable of doing it. Um, right. I don't, they just I, wouldn't but, get but the funding. They, but, the, but they are totally professionals who would like to get renewed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. Well, it's interesting because I, I do think that in some ways, especially some of the newer stuff, and uh, we're going to have spoilers here for you know all the seasons of Discovery. I've not watched Strange New Worlds yet, but if you need to spoil that, go right ahead. You know, there is more and more of the we have met someone else and realized that they are superior to us and we have to learn from them. And it's interesting because I feel like that is it's a story that's fundamental that is a critique of frontierism that's now about how do we explore to learn about our failings and to learn what do others out there know that we don't yet. Um and that is, I feel like, in some ways, a kind of fundamentally, it is the critique you're talking about, but you're right, it's not connected to it at all. Then no one ever says that, that, you know, no one ever uses that language of exploring to find where we're different or to find something else. It's just that language of the frontier has gone away entirely. Yes, very much. Um, I think that's okay. So, mm -hmm. um, I, I, it's best not to be overly explicit. You're not going to make a show that is so very American as Star Trek without being American. Um, 
I'm, to me, the concern is the more popular Star Trek becomes internationally, I think it's the more Americanized the planet is becoming, and that's problematic, right? When, mm. when people in Bali are really excited for the new Star Trek, I'm terrified. Um, mm. Because you think it's another way of sort of spreading frontier propaganda? Yeah. Yeah, we might as well be selling them jeans and um, Elvis Presley. Which is already happening, right? Yes. I mean, that's, it's like it's, a, it's another right. element in that, right? But it's but I, I do think there's there's something to be said for like selling the mythology on as opposed to just like the the goods kind of right, like yeah. Um, and I don't know. I mean, do you think that's something that comes with the like the the material things as well? Like when a McDonald's goes somewhere or a Walmart opens somewhere, that that kind of brings some of the the sort of like American mythology as much as just like you know the deforestation based hamburgers or whatever you know like <laughs> yeah definitely I mean there's a reason um, one of the biggest employers of anthropologists in the world is Target Corporation wow really yeah interesting <laughs> um, they do everything from figuring out what to put on end caps by watching people behave in stores to um, yeah. to figuring out, there's, I guess there's like three target layouts, figuring out how those target layouts work for areas for specific yeah. subcultures. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's what anthropology has become. Um, so then can you learn about a place by looking at its target? I know I'm like way off the... No, it's, uh, yes, you can. Um, I, I I did my my doctorate overseas, and um, so there were there were no targets. And I got there uh, shortly after I guess Woolworths had gone out of business, so there was not a Woolworths. Not that I'd ever been to one. Yeah. Um, so they had their own local stores, and I learned more about the city I lived in from the stores I had to go buy sheets at. Um, and, yeah. And and a very yeah. like in the in my guts kind of way, right? I, I don't know if this is still true, but I know for a while the Wall Street Journal had as one of the things it considered a leading like sign of foreign economic activity was based on the price of a Big Mac in the capital city of every country in the world because there is a McDonald's in the capital city uh -huh. of almost every country in the world. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> We're exploring the frontier of this topic, which is why it's okay that we're kind of wandering off on nice, tangents. Nice. Uh, tan tangents are now the frontier. Yeah. And yeah, I think it's such an interesting question because it's, it's with something like Star Trek. I think there is this like in one of the things that comes up a lot in the kind of media criticism that we do on this podcast is this idea of how do you wrestle with, you know, stuff that is, you know, where there's, you feel there's a lot of good things in a story or an actor or whatever, but the, the parts of it are also problematic. And what do you do with, you know, the, the all the feelings about this? I feel like Star Trek is, it, it creates sort of a new version of this problem because what Star Trek is doing is trying to keep alive the story of something that was originally told now, I'm bad at math, 60 years ago. Um, and it continue, and, and like the writers are clearly aware of the problem of it originally. Like I think if you started a new Star Trek today, like without using the word Star Trek, a new version of it, you'd maybe want to like disconnect from the frontier idea entirely. 
but it seems like part of what Star Trek has been doing is like how do, how do, okay we recognize that in the 60s we told this kind of story and the women were all in these kind of roles and that's bad so how do we change that how do we maybe not have it be all white people who are in command and all this stuff but you're still beholden to that the past and as you said the, the frontier is so integral to Star Trek um, so I think, I think it's just something really interesting there about how this show has tried to kind of like be aware of that while also not entirely cutting itself off from its past. I would agree with that. Um, I think it's important to defend Star Trek from the simple perspective that you can't avoid the frontier if you want to talk about something mm -hmm. that's Americanly cultural, right? Um, another anthropologist, a guy named um, Conrad Kotak, used to write in his intro textbook that Star Trek was um, a retelling of the Thanksgiving myth. Um, it was a multicultural get-together in one place where people figured out how to live together. Um, and he thought that was a significantly important thing about the idea of Thanksgiving and Star Trek, and he put them right together. And I think that's kind of true. Um, so the fact that we all had that same history growing up where they used to be racist and they're not, and they used to be sexist and they're not. Well, Star Trek used to be a little racist and a little sexist, and they're trying not to be. They're, they're still giving right. us that same kind of history we had in, like, sixth grade. Okay. Um, but at least they're trying. It's, it's, not, right. it's not like they're saying you can't teach the bluest eye in your high school lit class. Oh, like when people look back at stories that are told today that people think of as like some of the more enlightened stories, you know, or or things that are certainly trying hard to to be to like understand the world as it is and to be considerate of mm -hmm. all different um, sorts of people and you know, maybe animals, usually not. But like, I think people will look back and be like oh, well, you know, they tried, you know, and they did better than other people were doing at that time. And I, there, there is, I mean, there's an extent to which, like, we're all, you know, trapped by our own perspective, where we can always try to expand our, our perspective. We can always try to learn more and understand more and not, not make judgment, judgments based on, you know, a lack of information. But, like, still, we only know what we know, right? And... And so I think there always is going to be some reflection later that looks back and is like, oh, well, we probably could have done better, you know, but uh, of even the stuff that's ahead of its time, right? Like, I mean, I think Star Trek of the 60s could be described as ahead of its time, maybe not ahead of our time, but a lot of things now are still behind whatever the times will be at some point, hopefully, you know, if there is mm -hmm. something that we'd like to consider progress, right? And and it sounds like yeah. sometimes like when you when you make something, it's like, I don't know, one of my concerns about having like so many Batman stories and so many Star Wars stories and like Marvel stories and Star Trek stories is like there is an extent to which it's like these things were created when they were created. There are things about when they were created that are integral to the story, to the mythology, right? And like, like you're not gonna just like make Batman not a billionaire. Like you could, mm -hmm. you could. And I think there's a story that does that. And it, I, my understanding is it's a very interest, fairly interesting tale, but he probably was a billionaire and then lost his money and whatever, you know, and not like that happens, that'll happen. But like, there's, 
so many stories now like everything especially like these big like tentpole films they always want to be based on some ip that's already been proven to be successful in some lower risk format like prints right or or it's like oh well they already made it so like now we can spin that off into something successful and i i think it just it makes it very difficult to um to like what you end up getting is this like either you keep doing what you were doing or you like change things but then in a way that sometimes is like frustrating to people who liked the original thing and it's not saying you shouldn't do that but it's like i don't know i i, I just like to see more like new media that's like oh i had an idea let's make this story you know and then maybe not have a thousand piece uh expanded universe you know i say this while podcasting on like star wars universe podcast and like you know commenting on, on things <laughs> like that but it i i think it's something that is hard to get away from when like there are roots in in some story it's like it's you know it, it's in there and i don't know i i, <clears throat> I think with star wars star trek now though um, saying we shouldn't have more Star Trek or more Batman is the same thing as saying we shouldn't have another lawyer show. I mean, right. it's, a, it's a genre unto itself at this point. Um, there, you know, let's be clear: much of Star Trek sucks. Much of right. Batman sucks. Most of Batman sucks. Um, mm. Sorry, um, <laughs> but but um, but also I, another point to make is um, and. You can tell me this is an inappropriate way of putting it, but um, we're essentially three mostly white, mostly American, mostly enculturated male guys talking about Star Trek. Um, but um, I, I noticed with a bunch of my um, friends um, when Michelle Nichols died, they all showed the same image from an episode of the original series on their, on their feeds, um, and it, it had never occurred to me. Um, that this was an important moment. There's a moment in one of the episodes where somebody gets called away from the bridge and Nichelle Nichols' character is told to like sit down at the navigator's post. And to this day, black American nerds freak out about that one moment because it's so inconsequentially normal when it happens. Um, and I don't think we would have noticed it that way. Um, so, yeah, it's important to remember that Perhaps our perspective is, pro is narrow in that context, right? Um, but it's also the thing Paul said that's really you know, key is maybe we're not, we're not in a place to look back at Star Trek and go, they're not as good as they could have been if it hadn't been for Star Trek pushing us in the right direction. Yeah, I mean, I I've recently been reading Jane Austen, and, and what or I should say, what the, I I sound more culture than I am. I've been watching a lot of uh, adaptations of Jane Austen stuff, and they're wonderful. And clearly, she was for her time, or even for today, making incredibly needed feminist critiques of the culture that ring true today. She was also talking about the utter tragedy that would befall a young woman if she had to go from being upper class to being mm -hmm. upper middle class and the deprivations that occur when you move into a house of only two servants. Um, so, you know, there, there's some there's always that. But I, I think the point about perspective that you make is also so important. And it is one where I, where I do think Star Trek is also really pushing things forward is that. And some of the other things we're doing this is too, certainly Marvel, I think, is getting better at this, and I want DC to get better at it as well, is trying to say, okay, well, let's take that same story of the frontier, or let's take the same story of the billionaire, or whoever it is, 
but let's tell it from a new, not only tell tell it about new people, but have new people tell the story. You know, and I know the um, my I, I don't my understanding is that the 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 writers room for Discovery has been much more diverse than it has been in the past. Uh, certainly, a lot of the kind of Marvel stuff, you know, getting women writers, women uh, writers of color, queer writers, things like that, um, and. I don't know if this is like a complete bastardization of the term, but I wonder, it, is there some room for the idea that that is, or am I just being a horrible American here, that that's the next frontier we could, t- that we could talk about with this kind of stuff, is the frontier of not pushing into new space, but pushing into new ideas and pushing into, well, I mean, <laughs> if I start to say pushing into more people having the ideas or, or sharing the ideas, then yes, it is the exact frontierism, but now it's like, let's go out and colonialize their ideas. That's. So maybe I've just talked myself out of it. Someone should jump in and rescue me from this idea pretty quickly. But maybe the idea of a frontier is um, this is a, a mm-hmm. metaphorical way of talking about opportunity, um, and the new frontier is to extend mm-hmm. opportunity to broader classes of people, um, which I, is a thing I think that's that a part of it, but I want we're supposed to be doing. What what I what I more mean is the it's, thing it's of like, like, like yeah, the Orville, which I I will I will to my dying day defend the idea that the Orville is a Star Trek show. Um, it is not officially licensed by Star Trek, but it is one hundred percent a love letter to it. For those who don't like Seth MacFarlane humor, there's a lot less of that after the first season. But that show is one thing I think that that show is doing so well that that Star Trek did so well for so long and still is doing in some ways, is the idea of, okay, well we're used to this kind of racism. Let's go to a world where there's a whole new idea of what race could look like. Or, like, in the Orville, there's a planet that is all male, theoretically. But there's some, some questions about that. Or, like, Star Trek has done a lot more with, um, uh, not ambidextrous, my brain is being dumb, but uh, ambi about gender. Uh, androgynous cultures, you know, where, or, or cultures where genders can shift. I, I guess that was more what I meant, is the idea of saying, like, can we push new ideas in new ways and like ask us to think about the concepts in our own world differently by showing us the possibility of something that that's fundamentally different, but of those same questions. And maybe that's not a frontier at all. Maybe that's something entirely different. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, uh, yeah, I have like three or four things lodged in my brain that I'm trying to like, be like, okay, I wanted to say this and this and this, um, uh, to, to this point, I think, you know, I mean, like knowledge is a frontier, right? But it's also like, it's a frontier uh, from, a, from a perspective because like that information theoretically maybe exists or like somebody knows something, right. you know, but like maybe you don't. So that's like your own sort of frontier of, of discovery. But, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, it, it does seem like it's kind of just a metaphor, you know, it's like, the undiscovered or the the unknown but it's like you know people have been having a lot of ideas for a long time just it's more a lot about like who gets the opportunity to tell those ideas in the 200 million dollar budget you know or like or even just a published novel you know and and i do think that there is certainly 
more opportunity for more people now than there used to be you know um also i wanted to clarify i wasn't saying like i don't think there should be any more batman stories i don't think there should be any more star trek Mm -hmm. stories i think there should be a lower percentage of stories that are based on previously existing media i think there still should be some you you make a great character fine keep keep making new stories with that character cool no problem but like also make some more new characters more frequently you know and and invest in those characters as well you know it's not like it doesn't happen it just it happens less than i think would be um you know ideal and i think when you do like then you have more people have the opportunity to create their own characters as opposed to trying to adapt some other character um to their sort of view I, I also wanted to mention what uh, BuffyBot said in the chat, which was kind of right. uh, similar to, to what you're talking about. Um, that Nichelle Nichols, who played um, Uhuru in the original Star Trek and recently died, was apparently she was thinking of leaving after the first season. And, and she was like talking to Martin Luther King, who was like, look, you know, this role might not seem like a huge deal to you, but like it it's a big deal to a lot of people, you know, that like you you know, your character isn't the captain, right? But like, she is in a position of authority and a position right. that, you know, people didn't see black women in, in TV and in media um, in those positions at, at that time. And like, obviously still we could do better, right? And right. and hopefully that that is going in that direction. But it's like, yeah, that probably helped us get to where we are now to some extent. I um, Whippy Goldberg has talked often about how the first time she thought of becoming an actress was when she was a young child and saw the show. And she talked mm. to her mother because it was the first time she'd ever seen a black woman on TV or on screen who wasn't a maid. Um, and that really meant a lot to her. And But yeah, but at the same time, there's some great creators I was reading recently, black, black women creators, talking about how the character was, it was fantastic to see a black woman in that role. But mm-hmm. in terms of like, it was a woman surrounded by men basically as the secretary the glorified secretary you know and so raising some interesting points there it, it, it will you say though also let's me first of all I'll say I, I appreciate what you're saying about the kind of like the different perspectives because even as I was saying it I was realizing pushing in the idea of pushing into other new planets or ideas that have different ideas about race or gender like the binary system of gender is very much a sort of western conception so even there's a great example of that and part of what gets me thinking, and I, I don't know about this much, but I wonder, Matthew, if you do, I, Star Trek, I know, is very definitional to sort of on-screen science fiction. Um, so is Star Wars, although Star Wars is not science fiction, uh, but that's, you know, in terms of the... Exactly. But I feel like the, if I think about it, I see this frontier idea so often Space in opera. science fiction, in media, especially on TV and the like. I don't know much about science fiction that's being created outside of American or even kind of like Western concepts. I've read a good deal about Afrofuturism, for example. I've not had a chance to read much of it. I'm, I'm curious if you have much experience of sort of the science fiction that's being written outside of particularly like Western, you know, colonizer mythologies. And if, if, if we're seeing like science fiction without a frontier idea, being created in spaces where the frontier isn't a part of their mythology, isn't a part of their sort of national thinking. Right. Well, so here's the thing. When we talk about science fiction, we're really just talking about American science fiction. Um, Because everything we think of as science fiction is really just American science fiction. Even Jules Verne was not particularly frontier-y. 
so um, more and more um, science fiction creators uh, are, are working to ignore mm-hmm. the traditions of American science fiction. Um, but there's others that just never got exposed to it, really. Um, there's a huge wealth of stuff coming out of China finally getting translated now. Um, I'm thinking of the novel The Three-Body Problem, um, which is uh, an amazing science fiction novel um, that starts in mm-hmm. during the Cultural Revolution in China in the 1960s and deals with first contact, and it's just beautiful. Um, and at no point is there a frontier. In fact, if there is a frontier, it's really dangerous. Um, and we have to do everything we can to make sure nobody notices us or they will come and destroy us. I mean, that's the final summation of the story. If, they, if the aliens find us, they will come and kill us. That's why we never hear people um, when we're searching for extraterrestrial intelligence, because no actual integral interstellar intelligence is going to let us survive. Um, because they know it's a threat to them if they do. So everybody gets killed. Mm. Um, and that's, that is so not American science fiction, it's kind of ridiculous. Because right? um, American science fiction is so tied up in the frontier, and it always has been. Um, I don't know, the John Carter movie was pretty not as bad as people said. But the, the, the books it was based on from the early 20th century are these great little Edgar Rice Burroughs books, um, you know, they're like Tarzan on Mars, um, and they're just fantastic. Um, and they have red people, and they have green people, and, and they talk about them in completely racist and sexist ways, um, mm-hmm. um, because it's, you know, 1920. Um, but it, it's very American. It's very much the Virginian goes to Mars. Mm-hmm. No Chinese science fiction is like that. No um, Afro-futurist science fiction is really like that. Um, and um, we have American science fiction writers who refuse to deal with frontier ideology. They just refuse, and they're writing much better stuff. Um, um, N.K. Jemison won the Hugo three mm-hmm. years in a row for writing essentially books about um, African myth um, put in a science fiction context. It, fun, I'm embarrassed now. I can't remember the, um, the name of the person who... Not uh, traditionally American. Octavia Butler wrote Parable of the Sower, right? right? Okay, so I did remember. Yeah, I mean, those books are some of my, my favorite science fiction. And yeah, they're, I hadn't even thought yep, of them in those terms, yep. but they're very much about turning inward to community and community building and what that looks like instead of this idea of sort of pushing outward into a frontier mythology. I feel like... Oh, I was just going to say, like, I feel like what I know of, like, Japanese science fiction from animation is doesn't Mm -hmm. seem particularly frontier related. Like even Cowboy Bebop, which is, you know, it's not all it's not on Earth. It's like it's, you know, it's in the solar system and it's not about encountering new races of people or new species or new cultures. It's about. You know, I mean, they are literally colonizing the various different planets in the solar system. But, you know, again, there weren't people there before. So it's different than like American frontier. And the stories aren't really about that. Right. They're like much more inwardly focused and kind of like, you know, kind of noirish. And um, and and so I do feel I kind of hear what you mean about like. American science fiction and and having this kind of theme that seems to be to be very pervasive, but that that doesn't yeah. seem like it's everywhere, <laughs> it's right? In yeah, all I mean, kinds Cowboy of Bebop, science fiction, that that seems like it's Thankful. very much just about 
the same kind of stories we're telling now, sure. yeah, yeah. except <laughs> now instead of getaway cars, we've got getaway spaceships and, and some laser guns every now and then. But it's very similar kind of storytelling. But it, it does something that is also really cool, which mm. is it decides which things from American yeah. sci-fi it wants to use, and it uses them the way it wants to. Yeah. Um, and it just takes them and uses them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it doesn't take them and yeah. use them and without thinking them. about them. It examines them yeah. carefully and Definitely. then uses them. Um, and Do you have any specific examples? We talked about in kind of general terms, but are there any specific right? examples of, of Star Trek movies or TV or of episodes that you think are kind of a particular illustration of either positive or negative uses of or negative, positive or negative interactions with this frontier idea? Well, if you, in a general context, mm. think about how many times um, people in Star Trek have to deal with the 19th century somehow. Um, there's a an, there's an episode mm. of the original series where they have to refight the OK Corral fight. There's an episode with Abraham Lincoln. Um, <clears throat> There's a number of episodes of Next Generation that take place mm -hmm. in the 19th century. They go meet um, Mark Twain at one point, who's played by the guy who plays Data, um, and he does a much better. He does a good job. He's a pretty good actor. Um, they, yeah, Star Trek goes to other times, um, you know, to say whales and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But um, they go to the 19th century a lot because the 19th century is where the frontier is, um, and it, it just it fits. Um, so. When I think about refighting the OK Corral or going to see Mark Twain in The Next Generation, I think that's very Star Trek. Um, they also get, though, um, they get the other problem that um, you, Matthew, talked about earlier, um, which is when they do go elsewhere, sometimes they need something that cannot be understood. Um, um, and if there's a trend in Star Trek, it's to then figure out how to fix that problem. So when you first meet the Borg in The Next Generation, they're the example of completely yeah. incomprehensible other. Um, and oh, since then, they've become more and more comprehensible and understandable um, because they've become more human. Um, yeah. the, the new series, Strange New Worlds, is doing the same thing with the Gorn, the lizard people that Kirk fights. Um, they're completely incomprehensible. Um, and that's mm -hmm. why they're interested. And, but at least I think the new series, Strange New Worlds, understands what it's doing. Paul, you were going to say something? Is that a problem that you feel the writers are attempting to solve or that the characters are attempting to solve within the context of the story or not really a problem, but something that the writers are then kind of going away from after doing this interesting thing to try to make it easier for the viewers? I don't think I, 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 I think we have to put it in um, capitalistic terms again. Right. So you invent this great villain and this villain is great. And everybody loves this villain. Mm -hmm. So you got to write another story with this villain. Um, but you've got to have more right. of the villain for the viewer to get. Um, so so the, right. the Borg and the first time you meet them is like for four minutes and they're just like automatons. And and now when we talk about the Borg, we're like, they're led by a queen. It's a hierarchical society. Um, um, because every new episode that featured them had to make them more understandable. Otherwise, yeah. there was no story to tell. Mm. Um, and in the telling of stories, okay. you're always going to make them more understandable. 
But if the frontier is yeah, really about, I think that's one of the biggest problems in science fiction, especially that, Star Trek. Is, is, yeah, I, um, I love the, the Borg originally, mm-hmm. but, you, but it's hard to tell a story about something that is out of your context. And so, yeah, they give it the Borg Queen, and by the way, she's sexy and seductive, and like that. It, it's fun to watch her flirt with Data, but it, it, it to me it took away a lot of the mystery of the Borg. And I, a similar thing. I was thinking about this way way back, but like. To me, one of the fundamental problems Star Wars has always had, and in some ways it's a star I'm gonna mix up Star Wars and Star Trek. I do it when I'm talking about Star Star Wars, so it goes both ways at least. Um, you know, Star Trek in theory is about this completely moneyless society. But the writers keep realizing how much of the conflict in our own world, in in our media, in our narratives, is about money. If you take money completely off the table, it's really hard to find stories to tell. So now there's stories about, well, you need credits to use the replicator. It's not money, but still, I can offer you my replicator credits to ask you to do this thing, or I can bet this thing. And in some ways, I feel like Star Wars got a lot better when it introduced the the Ferengi, who are... The Frankie had a lot of problems originally. They were not great villains by any means. But by the time of DSN, uh, of Deep Space Nine, through the Frankie, you've brought capitalism and monetary exchange back into the Star Trek universe. And I was always sort of torn because I think it made for very good storytelling, or at least storytelling I could relate to a lot more. But also now you'd lo- like, I want storytelling in a world that has no money. But I also know just it's hard for me to comprehend, and so it's very hard for someone to write for me. Um, and that's kind of the tension, I think, that you get there a lot. Yeah. Right. Well, that's why they have to break the prime directive so much. Yeah. You've got to have conflict somehow. Mm-hmm. And if it's not going to be money, it's got to be something else. Um, and all of, all of our narratives are about money. Um, Although... Why Bruce Wayne is a billionaire? I, I was saying I went back and did some, right. did some checking. Um, He's not a billionaire in the original see, comics. Uh, He's Ursula, a multi-millionaire. So inflation. Uh, Ursula, um, <laughs> but go. sorry, go on. Yeah. He's a millionaire. Yeah. yeah. A million dollars. Uh, He'll have to be a trillionaire in Batman yeah. Beyond then. But. Um, in much the same way that Star Trek can't escape the frontier, um, stories from Star Trek or all science fiction can't escape capitalism. It's the same thing. Um, it's the same idea. The frontier was about opportunity to make money. Um, and Star Trek has never been able to avoid that problem. Right? Um, Ursula K. Le Guin has that famous quote. She was at the National Book Awards in a room full of like Amazon execs getting an award. And she said um, about capitalism, she said, you can't imagine a world without capitalism. Remember, two centuries ago, nobody could remember imagine a world without the divine right of kings. And um, but uh, Star Trek still has not imagined a world without capitalism because they can't. Yeah. Because then there's the problem with Star Trek has always been how do you have tension between characters? <laughs> right, so instead, I feel like sorry, go Paul. Oh, and no, go so ahead. instead that I was just gonna say. No. <laughs> instead, 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 they have the tension about political ideologies. Can we interfere with this culture? Is the only tension they can have. Paul, go. I, I do right. feel like there are so many 
conflicts that people find a way to have though with one another you know it's but that is a challenge of especially like a tv show right a movie you're like okay i'm gonna make this one movie i'm gonna come up with a conflict we're gonna build the whole story around it boom we're good right but like a tv series like oh man they used to do like 20 some episodes a season right like is a lot of conflicts to come up with and like you need your a plot your b plot like it's it's a lot of stuff and i i mean i do think there's plenty of things i mean also i'll just i'll just throw in a little like writing thought is like i i think the idea that like all writing stems from conflict or all drama or like that all good stories have to be firmly rooted in conflict i think is absolutely not true and i think there are other modes of storytelling and you know they might not be as, you know, capitalistically successful as easily, but like you can tell stories that don't have that much conflict. It's, it's doable, you know? Yeah. Um, but I, I do think Hollywood and a lot of storytelling is addicted to conflict and just money's what people know. Right. And, and it's like, I think writers and viewers and executives have such a hard mm -hmm. time being like, okay, let's let go of just totally put away this one, sort of like vector of conflict and then then we have to think about what's left right and and it's if you're trying to do 20 some episodes a year it's like that's it's pretty hard but like i don't know i feel like and you could do it I but do maybe maybe the, if they did kind three of episodes a year or the globalization it would, it would be better of media and, you know, gives me some hope could do it a little Paul, more i think you're right i don't know right now hollywood is not going to take some you know um Ugandan uh, or you know Paraguayan you know uh, author and give them five hundred million dollars to make a story about a science fiction story written that that outside of the American context, but we're seeing more and more TV shows start to really explore those things. One of um, my my partner Mary has really gotten into a TV show. I, I believe it's called Untamed, but it, it's basically it is a is an epic fantasy story with you know like different warring houses and, and sword fighting and magic set in China. And it's told by, uh, you know, it's, it's made by Chinese creators and it's, um, you know, about China, the way like Lord of the Rings is, is, is kind of very much like, you know, drawn oh. out of Western, you know, German and English mythology. This is very much drawn out of Ch Ch Chinese mythology in, in various ways. It also has an awful lot of wonderful gay content, which is a great thing about that show in particular that I recommend. But like, there's a number of these shows being made now. And, and so it does give me some hope that I would love to see some like, you know, uh, Netflix Africa, hopefully not Netflix at all, but like some, you know, TV company start to, to know, let, let's see Afrofuturism on, on, you know, as a TV show made <laughs> in Nigeria or somewhere else like that. Um, Cause I, 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 I love that it's happening in print, but I do think that the mass media is still always going to be on screen. And I, it's not that I think – I think at the end point, I'm never going to end up saying, okay, this is better because it doesn't have the frontier. But I think the more we get to watch TV, science fiction that doesn't have the frontier, it allows us to see how much the frontier is a part of Star Trek. And not that it's necessarily bad. Like I love Star Trek and I think Star Trek has great ethical content. But yeah, I think we're, you're really doing a good job of, of highlighting how much the frontier is baked in. And I, I feel like getting to see other things outside of that context really help highlight that.
Yeah. I, I think, like, Netflix actually right. has done a good job of broadening their sort of sourcing of um, of shows, mm-hmm. right, at least, and, and maybe movies as well, where they're... I mean, I, I watch... Most of what I watch is, is from Spain or Mexico, mm-hmm. you know, and, like... Because I, I, I like to watch my fiction in Spanish because then I feel like I'm studying or something. But, like, <laughs> it's, you know... Th- it is interesting seeing different shows made in, in different places that, you know, have sensibilities that are somewhat different than most of the shows you'll see that are made in the United States or, or in, I mean, for that matter, like if you just mm-hmm. watch English shows or movies compared to like American ones, there's, there's a difference or Canadian, like Canadian comedies. It's like, like, I mean, I think like Kim's Convenience and, and like Shit's Creek, like oh, yeah. they, they play with that sort of not having conflict exactly the same way you would have in, in most American sitcoms, right? Like some things will just end up not being I, I a big forget. deal have that you you're like, this Schitt's would Creek? definitely be the big embarrassing okay. conflict at the end what, what, of an American sitcom. One of the things and that it, you never, you know, it's funny because it, 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 it's the absence I have not, of something. So it's hard can, to notice at the time. It's fine. But the For writers me, have said account, they were very explicit about this. You know, the main one of the main characters is gay, and gay romance is a big part of the show. Homophobia never occurs in the show. Like there's never that it is never a source of conflict. There and even like there's a problem with the parents, but it's much to do with like just the mm-hmm. cultural like the parent. I think I think the parents of one are more kind of small town and have some issues with like the big cityness of the other partner, but like they made a very conscious decision of we wanted to tell stories about a, a queer character, for whom homophobia was never going to be a, a a source of drama, and. It's amazing to say that that's revolutionary, but it was revolutionary, you know, and in the same way people are saying like, you know, for a while, if you had a woman action hero or superhero, so often her story was built out of, you know, sexual violence happening to her or someone in her life and thus acquiring power to fight back about that. And people being like, no, stop. Let's stop having that story. Um, Right. Yeah, and it's not even that right. you can like never tell the story. It's just like don't always tell the story. Whatever the story is, like tell different stories. And and like when when there's something that's such a low-hanging source of conflict, it's like, you know, it's like, oh, should we do that one? Yeah, let's do that one. You know, I mean, there's a reason that there's like websites about like TV tropes, right? And it's like, oh, it's this trope. Oh, it's that trope. Like there's just like, you know, a list of things. Oh, we'll do one of those episodes that like, you know, well, we'll do one of the episodes where somebody gets like uh, one volume of the encyclopedia and then they know all the words that start with a V or a P or whatever. Like, you know, it, I mean, there's a lot of ideas. There's a lot of sources of conflict. You don't always have to go to the like really low hanging ones, particularly when they're ones that like, you know, echo traumatic events that many people have experienced. Right. Like maybe back away from those completely for a while and then you can sprinkle them in occasionally if you want but doing it in a conscious way, but like just not not always the thing, whatever the thing is, whether the thing's the frontier Definitely. or, you know, homophobia yeah. or violence or mm. anything like that. Or criminal law. Or criminal law, yeah. exactly, exactly. <laughs> I mean, if there's a, American shows tend to be, or you can do 42 minutes in any American show about two people not communicating effectively at the first five minutes. Of the I mean, show. 
if you hang, if you hang out with any group of polyamorous people and talk about media, one of the first things that will come up, I think a lot of people, monogamous or anything, can be sick of the love triangle trope. But hang out with polyamorous people and talk about love triangles and the like, why doesn't she just date both of them? It's a concept you're going to hear a lot, you know, because, yeah, I think I think especially when you're um, the, those tropes feel all the worst when you're, you're sort of living out the like it doesn't have to be this way. Um, well, it's been a fantastic conversation. Um, I want to kind of give us both a, a, everyone a chance to kind of say last words and then start to wrap yeah, up. Yeah. Matthew, is there any kind of that big parts sense. of this we haven't covered or any kind of quotes or, or other points you wanted to make before we start to wrap up? Hey, you know what? I actually do have a quote. Um, okay, so um, 1960, Kennedy gets elected and he's going to send people to the moon. Yeah. Um, he doesn't know he's going to do it. Um, he's going to be inaugurated in the end of January 61. He gets a science advisor. He's the first president to get a science advisor, a guy named Jerome Wisner, who's the president of MIT, an engineer, um, who did an entire committee report on what we should do in the space program. And one of the things he said was, you know, probably no matter what, we're going to go. Um, so the question is, how are we going to go? And the quote from that report given to Kennedy before he's even sworn in as president is this um, about humans in space. Given his enormous curiosity about the universe in which mm. he lives and his compelling yeah. urge to go where no one has ever been before, this oh, yeah. will be done. 1961. Um, we're talking zeitgeist stuff. My, um, and the fact that and the fact that Star Trek interrogates that zeitgeist. Yeah. My, my mother was very much a, a, a so, uh, 60s hippie. That would and she wanted to say that like, it, it makes it the best way to understand the fundamental hopefulness of the 1960s is to watch Star Trek. Because it, especially, she would see this as we were watching the Next Generation, the '90s, which is very positive and I think has hope in it, but it doesn't have that fundamental sense of like science is going to make everything better um, that it does. And I, I think you could like probably do an interesting sociology class on America in the '60s versus America in the '90s just by, excuse me, looking at those two shows. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. Better living through chemistry. Has a whole <laughs> We're going to do the sports <laughs> ethics one. We'll get to that, I promise. <laughs> you, you can Better have your, your Barry Bonds as your hero moment. Um, <laughs> that's right. That's there right. you go. There you go. He, he took a super serum, that's for sure. <laughs> I didn't say he's my um, hero. Paul, I said he's a real-life superhero. There's a difference. <laughs> he did. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I've really enjoyed this. Um, I, I don't know a ton about Star Trek. Um, I hadn't really thought about the, the frontier in this exact manner. And um, I, I've enjoyed getting to explore that with the two of you um, and, and uh, the perspectives you're mm -hmm. bringing. Um, I did see the Borg movie. Uh, there was, there's a movie, right, where they're like the main antagonist yeah. is the Borg. And... Um, mm -hmm. I, I enjoyed it. It felt kind of more like a horror movie than like what I expect out of Star Trek a little bit because they're like a little bit of this you will be assimilated. Um, and I just I've always wanted to make well for the last five or six years okay. a, like a t-shirt that says resistance is futile. The only solution is revolution. That's all I got. Like a non-violent, <laughs> like a quiet revolution. It, it is a common often that's just made a little that, bit of a, a play on the like whole Star Trek like resist. Like I don't know. I don't think that's enough. Not, like it's never made the kind of money that um, Star Wars has. 
and probably the two most successful uh, I think the two most successful movies are next uh, our first contact which I think you're right is very much right. it has a lot of Star Trek themes but still is in many ways a horror movie and Wrath of Khan which has very little to do with the normal Star Trek themes of like exploration and and encountering the new and ethical challenges it's mm. basically just a submarine movie like if you watch a World War II yeah. submarine movie uh, and there's some conflict between the captains, that's Wrath of Khan. Wrath of Khan is very much not Star Trek. <laughs> I think it's one of the best science fiction movies ever yeah. made. I love it. And it's hugely successful. But it's not it, – it, it's kind of different from Star Trek. Uh, I'll just close by also adding um, Buffy Bot further chimed in uh, when we were talking about um, – uh, uh, Ahura that yes yeah, she wasn't the captain and was also the Star Trek Smurfette but glorified secretary is a few steps up from the maid especially for the 60s and I just I love the term the Star Trek Smurfette and unfortunately that is so perfect for Ahura and I, I in terms I, what I appreciate is that Star Trek has always tried to find ways yeah. to sort of recognize the critiques yeah. and, and go with it and so, for example, you brought up the fact, Matthew, that in the 1960s, they were trying to push some things about gender equality, but all the women were in these miniskirts. So the first season of Next Generation, all of the like lower-ranked officers are in miniskirts, including the men. <laughs> Which is just like... Sure. Yeah, just... Yeah, never a named just, character, just but yeah, it was just a fun little... Yeah. like. Why not? That's how they're like, this is just this is just how the the, the lower rank people dress. I I feel like the phrase like you know who wears the pants on this spaceship or something. I, I don't like, think somehow, you can exactly I don't know, track it, it, it when just, ratings week it's, was it's in the Star Trek. I'm not sure for it, Next Generation. Never mind. By looking you know, at when they just, go to the planet where the people have some very cultural anthropological reason for not wearing clothing, um, but it was almost always during ratings week. You know, so <laughs> Matthew, you had a last comment to make. <laughs> Well, you know, yeah. say what you want about her, but remember, it's I'll say the, 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 the other things we can say about her is, A, like, we think about, like, her kissing Kirk shouldn't be a big deal, and whatever else you say about her character, numerous TV stations in the South wouldn't play that episode. So clearly it was a, like, real groundbreaker. And I love the way that, like, I don't love the J.J. Abrams Star Trek very much, but I think one thing he did was he said, okay, well, let's take a horse character and make her much more badass. And he gives her much more power and responsibility. So it's a way you can take that kind of thing and, and have it grow. Um, you know, to, to an extent, there's the um, people recently have been saying bad things about the new Star Trek. And they're saying, you know, it was never so political and it was never so woke. Yeah. Um, and the reason they're saying yeah. that is it, because the stuff that they were being political and woke about is just normal now. So they won. Uh, right. They won. The fact that it's... The, I, I kind of would love to see the, like, you know, TV, if you could ever talk to, to Force Ghost Jack Kirby and have him deal with the fact that Marvel is all of a sudden woke. You know, this night, the, the Jew in 1941 before we're in World War II writing a story about 
literally Jews creating a golem to go and punch Hitler. Um, you know, you could tell him that we won. I think he'd still want to punch everybody who thinks Marvel is now woke and wasn't. Um, but I still like that image. So, well, <laughs> thank you both. It's been a fantastic conversation. Matthew, we're definitely going to have you back on. Um, but in the meantime, yeah. for people who are really intrigued, they want to read some of the stuff you've written or find other stuff you're doing, where can they look? <laughs> I try to avoid being online. Um, you know, I have a Facebook, but that's about it because I'm old. Um, but if you just go to my webpage, which is matthewcapel.com, you can see the stuff I've done, which, you know, there's a couple of books on Star Trek that I've edited yep. that are listed there. Um, I so appreciate a professor saying that. But you can also always get them used. Um, right. Um, and... It, yeah, um, I have to. I have to assign one of my own books this coming semester, so I'm going to walk into class on the first day. And I had a professor who would. Because the books I read in grad school, um, they would fair. reprint it every year, um, and they would like change the pit, pit pagination a bit, so that you it was hard to figure out. And so she would say, like, I want you to read pages twenty through twenty-seven in the. 2015 version but that would be pages 22 through 29 and the two like she just would do that to like help out so uh and paul we've been doing all this on the uh zen madman twitch stream which one of these days we're going to get around to advertising <laughs> in five minutes before an episode goes up um but what is the zen madman up to Yeah, um, like a lot of chess lately, like, um, and uh, which, you know, I've been looking at chess books and they're, they're, you know, they're actually somewhat reasonably priced. Um, I was, I was looking at like the MIT open courseware a, a lot of times because I think, oh, maybe I'll study this, maybe I'll study that. And it's like, it's great that all these things are free online. But at the same time, then you look at the books you're supposed to get and you're like, oh my goodness, like, <laughs> you know, um, but uh, yeah, so I, I, I think it's great to, to um, promote your own used books as well. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I don't know. I'm tweeting. I'm playing chess. I'm playing poker. I'm mm -hmm. doing things on various. Awesome. awesome. Uh, I haven't been uh, making well, YouTube videos. Well, thank you both so much. I will say to a listener and, uh, who wrote in some great feedback Twitch about the Thor movie, Zen I am going to read your feedback. Uh, Paul, as I understand, has not yet seen the Thor movie, so I just want to wait until that happens. But it, is, it should be going to the uh, Disney Plus fairly soon. Um, September 8th. Okay, cool. So we we will get this because we did a great episode on Thor and Theodicy with a rabbi that I really enjoyed. September 8th. <laughs> oh, thank you. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. Um, and I was uh, give him a plug again. Pop Culture Rabbi on That TikTok. was a great episode. Great to check out. But of course, yeah. so we will get to that listener content uh, and we love more. So uh, let us know what you think. What do you think of this whole concept that we talked about? Are you a Star Trek fan? Do you hate Star Trek? Is this new ideas? Is this stuff you've been thinking about before? Uh, let us know. You can find all the ways to contact us by going to theethicalpanda.com. There, of course, you'll also find all the other podcasts that I do, including Star Wars Universe podcast, uh, which Paul is a frequent guest on. We're going to get Matthew on there as well. Uh, we're going to right now we're doing some stuff with the books and continuing our coverage of the TV show Rebels. We're getting really excited for Andor. Andor was supposed to be my birthday present. It was going to go live on August 31st, my birthday. It's been pushed back a few weeks. Just gives us more time to get excited. I'm reading every book that has some relevance to it to try and get psyched up for it. So check out that. Check out this. If you haven't, please subscribe to both of these podcasts. And most importantly, as fans, be good to each other. Bye.